I hope you got an outline when you came in. If you didn't, uh, raise your hand really good and high, and maybe one of our gentlemen named Daniel would go out and get a couple or three for you. I'm just picking on him, but if anybody would grab one or two of those, that would, that would be awesome. And uh, actually grab a few more than that, brother. Uh, folks are going to need them. And uh, so tonight we're going to be in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Uh, to me, it's one of the most exciting stories in the Bible, um, partly because of the way God just used that chapter of the Scripture to change my life radically. Uh, but also, this has tonight's story in John chapter 3 has something to do. It tells a story of something that's going to happen to every single human being, I believe, that ever lives, certainly to anybody who lives in America where you can hear the gospel and perhaps be changed. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this man named Nicodemus and his encounter with Jesus. And what Nicodemus is, he, he is a guy that is just on the brink of something great. I mean, he has the opportunity of a lifetime, but he also has the opportunity to shrink back. And we all know what it's like at times in our life when we've come to points where we had this great choice, this kind of decision, some kind of commitment, some type of something that could change our life. And, 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 and if there's a line drawn here, if we take a step across the line, absolutely changes our life. If we take a step back from the line, then you wonder sometimes if you'll ever get back to that brink again. You ever seen that happen? I mean, you're there at it and you think, yeah, if I go, man, oh gosh, that's so nerve-wracking, you know. But then you think, Man, if I don't, and then you step back out of caution and you go, wow, will I ever have that opportunity again? And so what I've noticed is this, that when people get to that line, when they get right to the brink, one of two things tend to happen to us, and it depends on our response. When you come to those crucial crossroads, what I call defining moments in life, some people sour while other people soar. I mean, some people, they want what's best, they want what's right, they are willing to trust and believe and take a chance for God, and they go. I've seen this a lot of times with a call to missions. I know God's calling me to missions. I know God's calling me to this or that. I gotta go someday. I'm gonna go someday. One day I will go. can still remember a very elderly lady when I first started preaching who cried her eyes out to me one day and said I knew when I was a young lady a teenager God had called me to missions and I never went and I have regretted it the rest of my life and some people can just step back and and sour and they get bitter and they wonder why they didn't go or why they didn't have a chance and they never really succeed in life as far as God's scale. Now, you know, that's what we talk about here, right? We're not talking about the normal TV preacher type definition of success. 
that you ha- get rich and you have everything and I get rich and I have everything we want. We're not, we're not talking about Rolls Royces and, you know, Bentleys and stuff here. What, what we're talking about is success in God's eyes as the gospel is concerned. And some people just sour and they never really are a success in their spiritual life. Some people, though, man, I don't know what it is. You see them, they get saved. And it's like it just takes and they just take off and they just soar. And they make a decision. This can happen in sports. This can happen in any avenue, any venue, business, you name it. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is this guy named Nicodemus who has this incredible, 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 incredible opportunity. Think about it now. This is the God's Redeemer is on the scene. And that's what John wrote about, wasn't it? These things have I written unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God. Why did he write the book? That you might know that you have life. That it's seeing these miracles that you might believe. And that believing you might have life. And so let's read John chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. And, uh, and, and then we'll go back and kind of just take the first part of it around. We're not going to finish this outline tonight, trust me. We're just teaching through this uh, verse by verse until we just finish this book. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, what that means is truly, most truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, he keeps saying that, doesn't he? I say to you, we speak what we know. And testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, what we're going to do is look at this man tonight who stood right on the brink of the most significant decision in his entire life. A man by the name of Nicodemus. Jesus, what he does, it's so cool, and I didn't even realize a lot of it till today I was studying. Very patiently works with him. But very firmly and clearly at the same time leads him through a decision. And Jesus, what Jesus does is, 
Jesus puts the line out there, and Jesus helps them to step across it. And what you're going to find as we go through John, you're going to find out this guy becomes an amazing believer. I mean, he becomes an awesome believer. But I think Nicodemus at this point, and I think it'll develop as I show you through the text, Nicodemus was on the brink and he was asking questions probably like this. Have I arrived at everything that God has for me? Because that's what we're talking about tonight, how I'll make a spiritual success of your life. Not necessarily financial success, that may be a part of it. But we're not concerned with that. That should be a byproduct. This, what we're talking about is how to make a spiritual success on your life. And I think Nicodemus, with everything he accomplished, was saying, is there more? I mean, why would he come to Jesus? Why did he come to Jesus by night, this teacher, this ruler? Is my spiritual life a success? I think that's a question that we should all ask ourselves very regularly. We should define... And, and what makes our life successful? Ask this question. Ask that question. Ask this often of yourself. Right now, if I'm honest, what makes my life successful? What makes me feel successful? And maybe even more important than that, a question I've been asking myself lately, what makes my day successful? Break it down into bite-sized chunks. What's the measurement today of genuine success in my life. That's what a preacher named George Whitfield posed to a man named Benjamin Franklin. Whitfield was a great preacher in American history and he was concerned about Benjamin Franklin's eternity. I put the quote on there for you. He wrote to him, here's what he said, I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world, in the learned world. As you've made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity, you remember flying the kite, right? I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. What he's saying to Benton Franklin is this. If you think lightning is a mystery, (laughs) that when you found it, there's some kind of power that you found in it, let me tell you something about a greater mystery investigate this. Now, I tell you, that's a smart preacher, amen? He knew how to talk to somebody who was an intellectual, who liked to study and loved the wonder of something that he couldn't understand, and he put it in his language. And Benjamin Franklin was an inventor and loved to discover things, and he says, go and investigate the mystery of this new birth. And he says this, look at the quote on your paper, it is the most important and interesting study. And when mastered... It will richly repay you for all of your pains. So see, I invite you to do the same thing. Let's look at Nicodemus tonight, and we're going to see what Jesus taught him about this mystery of the new birth. And I want us to think about what this conversation teaches us. Now, what we're going to do is, as our habit, we'll go back. We've read the text, and uh, so now we'll go back and look at it. So let's look at verse 1. So how are we going to define a spiritual success? How are we going to make a, a spiritual success our lives? Look at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, let me just take a little side road here, not too long. There's just more than I can teach here. But I think it's cool how Scripture names him. You know, Scripture is not like vague, all of you, or there was a man. There are times now when Jesus was telling a parable, don't get me wrong. But this is a real man. He is named. The Bible doesn't keep faith in Christ secret. When this was written, 
John was driving down a historical stake. And you're going to see why that's going to matter in a little while. Because this was an important guy who was coming to Jesus. He was named Nicodemus. Notice what he says about him. He was a ruler of the Jews. So number one, write this down, and, and we'll get it in just a second, but write this down. If you want to be a spiritual success in your life, first thing we have to do is regularly check your definition of success. Just write that down. Check your definition of success because, see, this changes. And so we have to ask that question. What defines success for me in my life? Look at me right here. I know I told you to write now, so look at me. But honest to goodness, if you and I were to check our definition at varying times, you might find out that you didn't write it. You might find out that maybe your parents wrote it for you. Maybe the boss you're working for now is writing your definition of success goals maybe society has written it for you maybe some movie wrote it for you all kinds of different things though regularly rewrite our definition of success and so we so that's why we have to continually check it that's why coming to church regularly not just coming to church but being in God's word and coming to church should be a part of that if it's not then you need to find a church where you're going to be under the word of God but that's why it, it is important important to regularly and systematically hear the preaching and the understanding and teaching of God's Word. Because everything out there wants to rewrite our definition of success, so we have to be carefully, uh, careful that we have to check it regularly. What constitutes a win? You know, at homecoming, I wrote down about four things that I said this would constitute a win for us. Very specific things. And so what do we know about him? Now, Nicodemus did this because here he is. He's one of the leaders, and you'll see it in a minute, but he's coming to Jesus, and he's obviously got some questions. But what do we just learn about him? First of all, it's on your outline. <clears throat> it just kind of glosses over it in verse 1. He was, what group of people did he belong to? Look at verse 1. He was a Pharisee. Now, today when we hear about the Pharisees, we think evil, bad, wicked guys. You know, they were the people that hated Jesus, and Jesus probably didn't like them a whole lot. But before we get too hard on them, there are probably none of us in this room that could live up to the standards that this guy lived up to. The standards for a Pharisee were amazing. First of all, there were only 6,000 Pharisees in the whole nation of Israel at that time. And so he was a part of the select group. And what they did, they had vowed before the Lord and before three witnesses that their whole life would be wrapped up in keeping the commandments of God, observing the commandments of God. That was the goal. So there's his definition of success. That's what defines success, keeping the Ten Commandments. And they did a pretty good job of it, actually. They really did. They were very serious about this. They said, we want to keep the Ten Commandments. But then somebody scratched their head and said, how do we do that? Like, because these are pretty broad when it says, just remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Don't do any work, okay? Somebody scratched their head and said, well, what constitutes work? And so, you know, they had these broad ten rules, but how do you apply that rule to the different circumstances of daily life so that you can live and be a success as a Pharisee and keep the law? 
And so what they did is they would try to write rules for each of the Ten Commandments that you could follow and show that you had kept them. And so their number one rule book, you can write this term down, besides, now, now they're getting away from Scripture, they're writing their own stuff, it's called the Mishnah. M-I-S-H-N-A-H, Mishnah. And, and what they did was they, in the Mishnah, on just one of the Ten Commandments, for instance, keeping the Sabbath, that's a pretty short commandment. It's really not that lengthy. You know what they had? They wrote out 24 chapters about how to keep the Sabbath, chapter after chapter, application after application. Even that wasn't enough because then somebody had to interpret the Mishnah. And so they wrote another group of writings. Write this down. It's called the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D. This was an expansion of the Mishnah. It interpreted what the Mishnah had to say about keeping the law. Now, in the Talmud, there's 128 pages just on the keeping of the Sabbath. Covered every different circumstance of life. They had to figure it out. So, for instance, they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. But how do you know if you're working or not? And here's what they would do. For instance, little things, little things, minuscule things, like, uh, like tying a knot. Was that work? Or was that not? And so they wrote down and said, yeah, they decided that if it was absolutely necessary for human life, then you could tie a knot on Sabbath. <laughs> but if it wasn't, you couldn't tie a knot. So, for instance, uh, if you wanted to get some water, you would have to do it before the Sabbath because you couldn't tie a knot in the rope to lower the bucket down into the well and pull up some water. Now, somehow, and weirdly enough, they said, I'm serious, if a woman needed to tie a knot in her girdle, that that was absolutely necessary. And so you could tie that knot. And uh, so eventually people like you and like I, they try to figure ways around this stuff. So they said, we can't get water. We need water. What do we do? Oh, I tell you what we'll do. We'll get a woman's girdle. We can tie a knot in it and fasten it to the bucket and lower it down. You think that's ridiculous. No, I'm telling you, this is absolutely how minuscule these people were about keeping the law of God. For instance, probably 15 years ago when I traveled to Israel, uh, it was absolutely amazing to watch the Sabbath kick in the gear in Jerusalem and the Orthodox Jews. For instance, in the fine hotel, they had Shabbat or Sabbath elevators, and they ran up and down constantly. One of them no, you never had to push a button. In fact, the buttons didn't even work on, because see, early when electricity came out, the rabbis said, wait, 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 now electricity, if you push that button, you're causing a spark. And the law of God says, the Mishnah says you can't build a fire on the Sabbath. And you can't extinguish a fire. That's work. And so if you cut a switch on, you're starting a fire, because they said that electricity was a little fire running through the wire. I'm serious as I can be. And so what, what we do you would stand in front of, if you were on the 14th floor, you'd stand in front of this one elevator, and it would go up automatically, come all the way down to the bottom. It'd go up, stop on the next even floor. It'd go up, stop on the next even floor, stop on the next even floor, stop on the next even, stopped on every even floor. Well, if you stayed on the seventh floor, you were in trouble. That's odd, right? So they built another one. They, they really did. I stood there and watched it, and I was like, this is weird. Now, they didn't have any problem having something called a Shabbat Goy, where that was a Gentile that you could hire to carry your bags or to push the buttons. But 
they wouldn't do it. It, it was just amazing. The lights in the room, you couldn't cut them on or cut them off. They were on a timer on the Sabbath. They came on at a certain time, and they went off at a certain time. That's it. You didn't adjust your day. So, so these people were into these Pharisees were really trying to achieve holiness and righteousness before God. And they were really trying to keep these Ten Commandments. But what it did, they wound up missing the spirit of it. And that's how silly it got. But that's how serious they were about keeping the law of God. Now, Nicodemus was one of those guys, one of the 6,000, probably some of the most moral people, humanly speaking, that we would have seen as far as the keeping of the law, people looking at him. He was also, though, a member, we find out later, of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, out of the 6,000, was a group of 70 religious men. And they ran the religious affairs, affairs of Israel. And uh, they had religious authority over every Jewish man in the world. So it was a very important that. Now, here's something cool. Look down at verse 10. And you're going to see that Jesus, when Jesus speaks to him, not only was that true, he's one of the 70, but in verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher. Circle that word or underline that word the because that's important, and it's emphasized in the New Testament Greek. You are the teacher of Israel. So you cut down from 6,000 to 70, and now you're down to one. And what Jesus said was, hey, you're, you're it. <clears throat> you're the authority. He had the high exalted position of teacher at that time, being the one who was looked to as the top authority, the top teacher of the law and the word of God. So... By all the standards of his day, he had arrived. His life was a success. Nowhere to go from the top except down. But something was still missing. Because he's coming to Jesus at night. And he's saying, Lord, somehow I, I'm missing something. And you know, just like we sometimes need to realize that, he realized it. So if we don't define success properly and carefully, what we'll find ourselves is like Nicodemus, and we'll be climbing a ladder, but it'll find out when we get to the top, it's, it's been leaning against the wrong wall. So number two, how to have a spiritually successful life. Nicodemus, you'll learn this in verse two, you have to seek out Jesus. You really have to seek out Jesus. Now, I don't care what you do in your life. If you live this whole life, what shall it profit you if you gain the whole world? but you lose your soul, and you wind up in hell. So look at verse 2. It says, he, he came to Jesus at night, underline that, and he said, Rabbi, now I want you to know something really cool, because we always get hung up on him coming at night, but that's not really the important part of the verse. It's interesting. It's not the most important part. He says, Rabbi, now I'm reading these words a little different now. We know that you are a teacher come from God. That word we is important. He says, because no one can do these miracles that you're doing if God's not with him. Now, people make a lot of this thing of Nicodemus coming at night, and there's probably something to it. Uh, by the way, incidentally, the biggest truth here is that he was the first Nick at night. <laughs> just thought that some of... <laughs> I'm just saying, he was. All right. <laughs> Young folks just got that. Some of you will be going home and saying, let me Google Nick at night. But uh, now why did he come at night? Some people think it's because he didn't want people to see him coming, right? He's this big guy and he doesn't, you know, and it's like they're kind of in contention with Jesus. And that could have been part of it. I, I really think it could have had something to do with it. Uh, 
It also could have been something as simple as the fact that he just worked during the day. I mean, he just had a lot to do. It could have, we're not told why. But it, I think it could have had to do with this. I think he had some deep searching questions, and I think he really just wanted some time with Jesus alone. And if you saw Jesus in the day, there was no time to talk to him one-on-one. I mean, none. Whichever those possibilities, there is something significant, because John mentions he came to him at night. But here's what I think is significant. He was wise enough to come and talk to Jesus at a time when he wouldn't be pressured by the opinions of others to seek out Jesus in a way that he could find Jesus' will for his life on his own. Now, I don't know about you, but I need times like that. I need times when I'm away from everybody. And I go and get on my face and I say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I mean, Lord, I need to get away from this. So-and-so is telling me I need to do so-and-so, and so-and-so is telling me I need to do so-and-so. But God, speak to me, please. What, what do you think? And take some time and listen to him. And that's what Nicodemus did. He sought out Jesus. Whatever his obligations, whatever his time constraints, he must have been an insanely busy man. You see him coming to Jesus by night at a time when he could spend good alone time with the Lord. Now look at verse 3, because I think Jesus' response is absolutely, <laughs> I don't, when I first read it, it really puzzled me, because he pays Jesus' compliment. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, you do it except God's with him. It's like a compliment, right? Doesn't even ask him a question, does he? It's just a statement. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, now what did Jesus say? Thank you so much for your kind words. I'm really, a, uh, I'm really wowed by that. And man, to have you here telling me what a great guy I am, that means so much. Jesus just looks back and he says, so let me do this. Who will read this verse to me? Who will read verse 2 to me? Who has a Bible? You'll read verse 2 to me just like, just a, like you're Nicodemus. Just read it to me. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's how, that's how the conversation went. Like Jesus, what he says is amazing because what Jesus does, he just gets right to the heart of the problem. Here comes Nicodemus. You're a great man, Jesus. And everybody says you're a great guy and we see all these signs. And Jesus looks back at him and says, you got to be born again, Nicodemus. <laughs> He's the teacher of Israel. And so let's talk about some significant things. First of all, if you want to learn communication style of Jesus, write this down. Number one, first of all, Jesus gets right to the point. Doesn't he? Right, he goes right to the jugular. Not in a mean way, but now listen, this is the way Jesus always dealt with things. He was clear, firm, and direct. If you want to learn something about communication style from Jesus... This is one of his habits. He does not beat around the bush. In other words, he never walks up to Peter and says, you know, Peter, I appreciate you. You're such a blessing to me. I'd like to take you out for lunch sometime and just, man, just say thank you. And then he gets sat down for a meal and he says, oh, you know, by the way, Peter, do you know uh, anyone who might be interested in making a couple extra thousand dollars a month only work about eight hours a week? 
I got this great multi-level deal I'd like to get you involved in. You have more money to give to God? He doesn't do that. He walks right up to Peter. He says, Peter, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. When the rich young ruler comes and he says, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't say, well, let me think about this. Let me take some time with this. He just looks at that guy. He says, you leave everything. You go sell everything you have. You give all the money to the poor and you follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Boom. I mean, boom, man. He just drops it. Now, he doesn't do it in a harsh way. But he does, he does do it in an incredibly clear way. Again, I go back to what we talked about a little bit last week. Jesus was not always nice. Now, he was never unnecessarily mean, and he was never ungodly, and he always was godly, but and he always spoke the truth, didn't he? But Jesus was not always nice and gentle. I mean, read his words in the New Testament, man. Sometimes he, he is very clear and direct. Whenever I try to do this, I wind up doing it in a harsh way <laughs> when I'm trying to be clear, firm, and direct, because I get mad. And so I want to learn from Jesus how in a clear way to get the point and say, you know, here's the truth that you really need to hear. You know what I find? And we may just kind of park here. I don't know. I find Christians have a real hard time telling other people the truth. Someone in the church, now this is not a problem here that I know of. I'm sure it's a problem here. It's a problem because we're humans. If there were two of us in this room or one of us in this room, there'd be a problem with it. But you know, somebody as carnal as the dickens, they're as mean as a snake, or they gossip all the time, or they're unfaithful, they don't, you know, they do something they're always late or whatever, and they come up and say, now, you know, tell me the truth, am I, am I messing up? And you go, no, 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 you're fine, don't know, uh-uh, don't worry about that. You know, you no. And you're walking off going, man, I, I wonder if I should have told them the truth. You know, one of the things that I do with you constantly, and I do it with me, I think one of the things that especially men need to do, but even you ladies, sometimes we need to sit down with those who love us, and we need to look them in the eye and say, I give you permission. I'm not only give you permission, I'm, I'm asking you to be truthful with me. Am I too driven? Am I obsessed with work? I mean, my wife told me, we, praise God, we closed on our house this morning, the one we're selling in Cornelius. I'm so glad. She told me the other day, um, I don't think I've ever seen you be so mean. <laughs> she wasn't joking. <laughs> and, and we had. We just getting into the habit of being snappy to one another. But see, that, that word, that truth, man, being direct with me, not being mean, picking a good moment to say it, you know, <laughs> really, really helps, doesn't it? Because it stings. But it helps. Thank you for stinging. As I always say, got up this morning. I got up this morning. I squeezed my toothpaste tube. Guess what came out of it? Toothpaste. That's awesome. Isn't it? Isn't that crazy how hard that is to figure out? It's exactly you are smart. You really are. Perceptive, too. <laughs> but uh, but that, you know why? Why did toothpaste come out of it? Because that's what's in it. Yeah. That's what's in it. Now, we go out into life, I mean, that's not hard to figure out, is it? You got toothpaste in it, you squeeze it, what comes out of it? Toothpaste. What we do, though, we go get mad at the person that squeezed us. But they didn't put that in you. you so next time you get squeezed, you need to say, thanks for squeezing. 
I got junk in me. <laughs> I need to get it out. Because stuff com- we get squeezed, stuff comes out of us. Some of it's pretty good, some of it's not so good, right? But see, Jesus really, here's the reason Jesus, I think, could say things like this right. He always operated from a motive of love, and that resulted in compassion. Like, he didn't want to just scathe people. He really loved them. And so he had compassion. He wasn't trying to just get through the conversation quickly like I am sometimes and say, well, just get to the point. He wanted to speak clearly to people. You know why he spoke clearly to people? So he could change their lives. And we don't change people's lives when we speak unclearly with people. We are not doing our employees nor our spouse a favor when we hide the truth. You got to be careful how you speak it. You got to speak it in love. You got to wait for the, There's a lot of technique involved, but it has to come basically from a heart of love. And we say, you know, I got to address this with you. You asked me the other day, tell you you thought I was spiritually immature and I hedged on you you know here's what we say people say well why didn't you tell them and you're like well I love them I don't want to hurt them right isn't that what we say all the time if people ask us to tell them the truth and we don't tell them the truth why didn't you tell them the truth well I didn't want to hurt them so you helped them by telling a lie now you don't have to scathe them you don't have to chop them down the ground you know but what does this book of Ephesians say we are to speak the truth in what? Love. That's exactly right. makes a huge difference. It makes all the difference. And Jesus always did that. And so Jesus got right to the point. Um, secondly, uh, I think this is a fascinating truth about the passage that you'll only get it from looking at the passage. Notice that Jesus changes the pronouns immediately. I think this is cool. Now, this is why I've said the Bible is a book of words, and you have to slow down and study the Bible. You have to read every word. Because Nicodemus comes and he says, there, there's a lot of us. I mean, we believe that you're a teacher that's come from God. And, you know, we really respect you. And you know what Jesus does? He changes those pronouns from we to you. I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Marvel not. He'll say later, that I said unto you, you must be born again. He looks at Nicodemus. He starts talking about him, about his life to him. He didn't say, well, let's talk about how those other guys feel about me. And so Jesus has this habit of making things very, very personal in our lives, doesn't he? Isn't it amazing? The other thing that I've noticed is Jesus gets, refuses to get involved in mindless, useless debates. Like the thing that bugs me to death is Christians getting on Facebook debating about how many angels could sit on a pinhead, you know. Gee whiz, what does it really matter? Go share the gospel. Go love somebody. Go feed somebody who's hungry. Go, go help somebody who's destitute. And, and so some people just, you know, I had a guy a while back. He's a good friend of mine. Been a while, texting me, keeps sending me about something, another Christian leader that I quote all the time. As, he said so-and-so, and he did so-and-so. And I said, listen, don't write me any more letters, any more emails about somebody else. I got a hard enough time keeping Jack Holmesley straight. I can't keep every other evangelical preacher out there in the world straight. If I can keep me straight, I'm doing good. You don't talk about anything else. You want to talk about Christ, meaningful stuff, I'll talk to you. But I really don't want to receive another 
I ain't got time to go investigate Billy Graham or Franklin Graham or anybody for that matter. I'll just, that's enough said, okay? <laughs> you can tell that's a tender spot with me. All right, so number three, this is cool too. Jesus literally answers Nicodemus' question, I believe, before he even asks it. Write this down. He answers Nicodemus' question before Nicodemus even asks it. Nicodemus has not asked a question yet. Now, you remember the Gospel of John and its purpose, that John wrote it. And remember that we're reading through it kind of like a letter, and a person would have been, they would have been reading this going, wow, this guy comes, and oh my gosh, he was, a, he was the leader. They would have understood all that, right? We didn't have to explain any of that about who Nicodemus was. So I want you to think about, so like we really separated every week when we break off between chapter 2 last week, and now we're in chapter 3. So somebody read the last verse in chapter 2 because there's this huge break there and I'm glad the breaks are there because we can find where we're at in the Bible we can say go to chapter 3 verse 1 but sometimes it kind of damages the flow of the text you understand the chapter divisions are not inspired right they're added later they're good they're helpful sometimes they do damage who will read the last verse in chapter 2 verse 25 oh boy Oh, boy. The last verse says, he knew what was in a man. He knew what was in Nicodemus' heart, didn't he? Now, in those days, there was all kind of talk about the kingdom of God and achieving God's kingdom, arguing about who's being great in the kingdom of God. Jesus' disciples even argued about that, didn't they? Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? And so Jesus, when he comes in Nicodemus just makes a statement and I think that Jesus answers his question like man he just knows what's in his mind and heart and Jesus looks at him and knows that he's searching and he says unless a man is born again he'll never see the kingdom of God can you imagine that happening would that not be a trip it's like you come in here and you're thinking man I'm missing something I, I don't know what I'm missing that's the answer Jesus says to be born again. I think that's a blank that you need to write down there. If you want to be a spiritual success in life, if you want your life at all to be a success, and you don't want your life to be an utter failure, here's the key. Be born again. You've got to have that. I'm telling you, if you gain the whole world, if you make all the money and you, you, whatever your definition of success is, if you play with the greatest sports team, you set all the records in the world, but you die and go to hell, your whole life has been a miserable failure. I mean, wouldn't it be a failure if you did all this great stuff in this life and you wound up and you spent an eternity in hell? You've got to be born again. So this was, now, this, that statement <laughs> was an incredible challenge to Nicodemus because look on your notes first of all why it was a challenge to him he was a jew so he was like man they thought of themselves as the people of god and this would be like and he's the nobility right so he would be like walking up to the king this would be like common today of typical of walking up to the king or queen of england and saying you know you might have made something of yourself if you'd been born in the right family <laughs> i mean nicodemus probably was thinking well those romans need to be born again but i'm a you know i'm one of god's people 
Those Gentiles may need to be saved, but not me. Jesus, I am a Jew. But Jesus looked at him and said, you, as an Israelite, have to be born again. That's a great challenge to Nicodemus' life. That term, born again, I want you to think about it some with me. It, 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 uh, every one of us have heard it, and it's become a catchphrase. And it's used just kind of flippantly now. And I don't even mean disrespectful, but say a football team has a terrible year, and then they get a new coach, and they have a great year. We say, man, that team's been born again. Or a company tanks one year, you know, and they just are struggling, and then they get a new CEO, or they get new employees, new methods, new strategy. They come in, and they're knocking it out and say, boy, that, that's a born-again company. They've been born again. Or you got a soft drink out there. It's not doing too well. And then they relabel it. <laughs> Like Mountain Dew, which their slogan used to be, it'll tickle your innards. I, I swear, that's the truth. Do you remember, anybody remember that? It'll tickle your innards. And they used to have this old hayseed country guy sitting there with a musket, a rifle up against his hat, chewing on a straw, sitting under a tree. And that was it. And they thought, this isn't working with the young crowd. So they went and thought, put on a big campaign and said, now we got to do the dew. <laughs> you know. Let's get two rams running, butting their heads together. Guys jumping off of cliffs. Extreme sports. What happened to the hillbilly under the tree? He's been born again. Company's been born again. But that's not at all what this, it, what it means is like to get a new start. But that's not what this word means at all. That just means like some kind of a renewal, some kind of new packaging or something coming back from something. But the Greek word that's used here for born again really means to be born literally born again a new life and it means to be literally born from above that's what it means to be born again but from above a brand new life it means those two things so this isn't just a fresh start this isn't just a renewal it's something spiritual that happens in our lives it points to an entirely new spiritual birth you were born the first time physically now your spirit side of you has gotten right with God. And so what Jesus is saying is that, listen, you can't be spiritually successful without a whole new start, without a spiritual new birth. And spirituality, he's saying, not just something that you just kind of add on to your life. Well, I'll just start going to church. Now, I'm glad when we start going to church, but that's not the way to Jesus. You can, going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Going into a garage doesn't make you a car. And, and so, so, like, it's not about going to church. It's, it's about having a new birth. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. So you don't just, not like something that you just add on to your life. Now, that's exactly what Nicodemus would have wanted to do. He had thousands and thousands and thousands of add-ons, right? He's got the Pharisee stuff, he's got the Sanhedrin stuff, the teacher of Israel stuff. Maybe I could add one more thing in. And Jesus looked at him and said, nope, you have to be born again. You got to start fresh and new. Now that's what he says to all of us when we begin to, you know, come towards him and begin to grow in Christ. We want to make him part of our lives instead of the whole of our lives. But that's not how I'm spiritually successful. I'm spiritually successful when I start new, when I, when I get born again. 
And what Jesus is saying is this. Now listen to me. I don't want to be part of your life. I am your life. And if you want to be a success, I want you to have a spiritual definition of success. I want your life to be spiritually successful. And, you know, sometimes we're just, we have a strategy of success that's based on what other people are going to think about us. <laughs> How's that working for you? If I can just impress my mother-in-law. If I can just, <laughs> that is so hilarious. I've been looking for that Bible all day. He used to bug me to death that the preacher would leave his Bible sitting around. I thought, that joker isn't reading his Bible. I just want you to know i got more than one Bible. <laughs> but that's my best one, man. If you ever find that, please give it back to me. It's so weird. I looked over, there it is. I'm like, there's my darn Bible. Where? All right, so like, like one of the things that I don't really try to do, and I say this humbly, I don't like try to impress people with my religion. I don't try to impress like you a lot of times. I really don't. Um, maybe I should try more. I don't know. I think about old Mick Jagger. Seriously, he's been singing like, I can't get no satisfaction, right, for 35, 40 years. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, dude, you got to change strategies. <laughs> so we say, oh man, he's wildly successful. Is he? Is he? I don't know. I'm being tongue-in-cheek when I joke about him singing that, but you know what I don't want you to do and I don't want me to do is live our whole lives and then get to the end of our life and, and realize that we didn't get any satisfaction because we had a wrong definition of success. And so we still got some more things that we're going to cover next week on. We'll wrap up this study, some really good stuff, some of the meat that we haven't even gotten into yet. But I want you to go home tonight, do those three things. I want you to, you know, really examine your definition of success take the points that we've talked about tonight, really begin to seek Jesus. I'm just marking my notes so I'll know where we start back. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Nicodemus was wise enough to come to Jesus and look at Jesus and say, what's the new strategy? This one isn't cutting it. What you're going to find is that when at the end of Jesus' life and after his resurrection when a lot of these Pharisees are really struggling and some of them never found Jesus and they lost and they died and they went to hell. You're going to find that Nicodemus comes and Nicodemus helps bury the body of Jesus and he becomes, a, he becomes a disciple of Jesus. He got it. He got it. He got it. Wow. Watch this. Let's have some fun. It's my son. He's a pastor really is. Hey, John, what's up? <laughs> I'm just standing here from about 75, 80 people in the church talking to you on speakerphone. I really am. Say hey to Jonathan. Hey, John. <laughs> he, is, he said, I'm glad I didn't say something bad or cuss you out. Well, I am too, and I'm sure the people at Lake Wiley Baptist are glad you didn't do the same, man. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll call you in a little while, okay? All right, love you, buddy. <laughs>
<laughs> that is so funny. I've been waiting for that to happen. I've been waiting for that to happen. I had a guy one time, my phone went off on the stage, probably a thousand people there. I'm not kidding you. I answered it, started talking. He's like, what are you doing? Stand here talking to a thousand people. What can I help you with? He's <laughs> like, you're kidding. I said, no, I ain't say hi. Everybody did it. Thank you for playing along. That'll be great. He'd be like, man, you're crazy. Let's get, our, let's get our definitions right, though. Amen? I love you, and I'll be praying for you, okay? Go alone, seek Jesus, and say, Lord, tell me what I really should count as a success for my life when I get to the end, even of a day. Man, it'll make all the difference in the world. Thanks for coming tonight. Very much so.